Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. Man, we got a little football news this morning. How about that? Ute's got a three-star running back out of Tampa, Florida. Verbal commitment. Hasn't signed yet. Although Caleb Lohner just made it official he's going to BYU, so I guess even when they sign, you never really know, right? But good get for the Utes. Another running back from Florida. He's supposed to be one of the top 20, 25 running backs in the country, depending on which of the ranking services you prefer. But either way, he's supposed to be really good. So that's a major positive for the Utes. The, um, assuming they go ahead and sign him and land him and all that, he'd be a freshman in the fall of 21. If uh, Jordan Wilmore is the guy now, he's a sophomore. We'll see. He's done some stuff. They're excited about him, but... You know, he hasn't been every down back yet because he's waiting his turn behind Moss. But he would be a junior as this kid comes in as a freshman with a redshirt year. You could separate him more, although it's running backs. So you can play more than one guy. And they got some other guys on the roster this year they like too, so there's no guarantee Wilmore's the guy. Uh, and then there's the NFL news, a freakish coincidence out of New England. On the day the NFL finds the Patriots $1.1 million and strips them of a third-round draft pick for cheating. The Patriots, imagine that, for cheating. I'm not that big into the whole uh, deflate gate thing, but the spy gate and this this looks like that. And it's stupid too. What are they doing filming the Browns and the Bengals? They had to be those that's, that uh, you don't need to do that. You're way better than those guys. Anyway, so they did it and they got busted for it. Their TV crew was shooting the sideline. And so they signed Cam Newton on the day the NFL announces that. Crazy the way that works. It's almost like they had the Newton thing ready to go in their back pocket. So they could put two news stories out there and kind of bury one, or at least try to. I don't think they can, but at least try to. Cam Newton, it's a one-year deal. It's incentive-laden. It's a great deal for Newton. He gets to go to a team where he can show his stuff and he can be pretty good. I don't think they have to be great. I think they've taken too many hits there, lost too many players on the defensive side of the ball too. And, uh, but they could win that division, uh, and they could be a wild card. So if he gets the Patriots to the playoff or wins the division, uh, he's got a chance to make a lot of money. He's still young enough to get a multi-year guaranteed contract. Uh, he's got to be healthy. You know, he can't have any of the issues he's had health-wise because that scares everybody off. But if he's healthy and he's productive, and I think if he's healthy, he will be productive. The question is how productive, you know. Um, he doesn't have to get back to MVP form to get, a, to get a big deal and go to a good team and all that. Although if he does, it's just an added bonus. All right, DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. We've got David Locke and Dr. David Petron coming up. Stay with us. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Take The Zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of The Zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, the Zone, and the Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. We're no, joined now by Dr. David Petron, University of Utah Healthcare, and the Utes head team physician, Dr. Petron, good morning. Good morning. Hi, guys. Good to have you back on. We had you on a couple weeks ago, and I'm curious, uh, when I read stuff, I, I read that you know we're learning more about coronavirus all the time. How much time do you spend trying to uh, keep up on it, and, and what do you know now that you didn't know last time you were on the radio with us? Uh, I spend a fair amount of time on it. It doesn't really fit in with sports medicine. And so everything's been a learning process since this all broke loose with, uh, 
with Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell, um, learning all the time. It's a novel virus, so everybody's learning all the time. Uh, still a lot of unknowns and a lot of challenges. Uh, we met with the Pac-12 yesterday, and so each each team has a representative from the Pac-12, and we have some infectious disease specialists involved. And I have to tell you that after that meeting, as opposed to other meetings, there was a little bit more of a sense of pessimism, I think, uh, coming out of that meeting. Yeah, that's what it seems like going on right now in general. Is that obviously because of what is going on that that led to maybe some optimism a week or two ago and has declined into that pessimism, as you say? Yeah, some of it has to do with what's going on in our country as a whole. I mean, you know, a few months ago, COVID wasn't even in the top 75 causes of death in this country, and now it's the number one cause of death. And, um, I mean, it's more remarkable than the 1918 flu pandemic, and numbers are going up, at least in the United States. Worldwide, for a lot of countries, the numbers are going down. But that's one component of it. But really, some of the challenges are, are really within sport itself. Um, and even just, well, let me give you a few examples, and then you guys tell me what you think. You you talk to people all day long about this as well. You probably have as much or more knowledge than I do on a lot of these issues, at least as it pertains to sport. But some of the challenges are really, how do we even define what high risk is in an athlete? So. We're having trouble coming to a consensus with this. So just say somebody tests positive for it on a football team, then who are the high-risk contacts? And how do we define define who they would be and how we isolate them, how we test them, how long they'd be out? There's just a number of challenges. So one way is just to say, okay, you test positive, so anybody that you're near or you room with is also uh, considered high risk. And so on, on a best-case scenario with that is you would test them on day three and day five, and the very best-case scenario is you get the results back within 24 hours. And so everybody that was a high risk for that positive test would be out a minimum of a week. Um, and that's that's kind of best-case scenario. And that's the other another issue is just testing itself. So within the Pac-12, we don't have a one standard test that everybody is doing. There's challenges within each university. So, example, at the University of Utah, we have a lab on campus. So that's an advantage for us. Washington has a lab on campus. Well, Corvallis and Eugene, a little more isolated, they don't have access to that. And they're talking about that their turnaround may be more like 48 hours or longer. So then when you start testing an athlete and they turn positive and you're not going to get a result for 48 hours or longer, that even slows the process down on return to play even further. The other thing that we know now is that there's some risk if you exercise immediately after testing positive. So somebody who tests positive, the recommendation is really a a graded return to play, but on the quickest end of that, it would be about a 17-day time period before that athlete would be able to return to play. So part of the problem is we don't have a consensus on a uh, conference-wide level on what testing we're going to do. We don't know for certain how quick the turnaround will be for that testing. I mean, ideally for a football game, we'd want to test, say, on a Thursday night 
have the results by Friday morning before somebody has to get on a plane and travel and then um, play the game on Saturday, and then that would be relatively low risk. But that even seems to be difficult because some of these teams can't get the results back that quickly. And so if you start testing somebody on, say, a Monday or a Tuesday and they travel on Friday, um, and then even with the travel itself there's risk uh, on an airplane and and. I mean, the bottom line with all of this is is there's going to be risk um, with return to play of athletes. It, you can't test your way out of it. It's a little easier on the pro level, where I think uh, the NFL is looking at testing daily or every other day. The NBA, we're testing every other day. Um, and then once they're isolated in the bubble in Orlando, I think that's a little bit more controllable than an athlete that's um, – a college athlete that this isn't their occupation, they're not getting paid for it, and they have want to have a lot of social activities that they want to do, and just a lot more moving parts at a university, I think, than a, than a pro team. So we heard, and this is a couple months ago, so people may not be holding on to this position anymore, but we heard, we're going, if somebody else can't go, oh well. So for the schools that have... Um, the the testing facilities and the labs on campus, you know, Utah and Washington, is there this thought in the Pac-12, well, that they should go and Oregon and Oregon State, if they don't, well, best of luck to you and I hope you can play at some point and we'll play you if you can play when you can play? Yeah, but if you think about that, DJ, that's kind of how this all imploded to begin with, right? It started with Rudy and Donovan and then you remember back in the with the basketball NCAA basketball tournament, it kind of started out with the conference-wide tournaments where they said, well, okay, the women will play. And then, well, okay, the men will play, but there won't be fans. Okay, there'll be 50% fans. No, there'll be 20% fans. Uh, this team's pulling out. Okay, then I guess we can't play. And then before you know it, the, all the basketball tournaments are called off. So it just was kind of a domino effect where everything went like that. I. I don't see that a conference unilaterally will be saying that we're going to opt out of, um, of competition this year for whatever sport. But I, but I do see the potential for it starting with one team or one university and then others end up following um, similar to what happened in the past. How are these workouts going now with the players and athletes who've come back to campus? It, so far for the University of Utah, as you know, we don't talk about specific injuries and we don't um, name name the injuries, but I can tell you our testing has gone great. Um, they're, they're working out. The workouts are going well. And if you look at some of these other universities that had problems with this, most of the problems uh, were on the social level, not with the uh, actual workouts themselves at their respective institutions. So, DJ, I, I heard you the other day. I can't remember who was on, but they asked a, you asked a question about, I want to get this right, but basically the gist was kind of, well, I mean, if they just stay in their hometowns and they do what they're going to do, they're going to potentially pick up the virus versus going in playing sport and doing what they're going to do, and they may pick up the virus. But And I don't know if he answered your question appropriately, but... I think the idea was how does sport change it versus 
if the athletes are picking this up on a social level. Yeah. I get that right. Do you remember the question? I do. I do. I do remember it. And I do remember that. I don't think the person, I can't even remember who we were talking to, but I don't think the person fully grasped what I was getting at. But it goes back to what you said about it. it's the social. That when we see an outbreak at a school, well, then you find out some players went to a club at LSU. There's a party at Texas when it was the Orlando professional women's soccer team, the Pride. Well, a bunch of them went to dinner and drinks together. And so it's not the, the weightlifting or the film room or the practice or the game where they're getting it. They're getting it, like you say, in these social situations when they're around each other. Right. And it's almost a, a more controlled setting. Um, when they when they have um, you know a, a list of the activities that they should be doing on a almost hour by hour day to day basis when they get back to sport it's really more organized in some ways now there's clustering of athletes obviously and there could be potential in dorm rooms and that type of thing but um, I mean there's risk with day to day activity in life too and so I, I mean I I understood your question when you asked it then and I think it's I mean, I agree with you with with what you're saying because most of these outbreaks have been more from social interaction rather than what's happening uh, with athletics itself. So do you see a situation, and if we're resuming, and we'll go with football because that's the highest profile and that's up next, to where they basically have some type of uh, – I can't use the word quarantine in its purest sense, but some type of quarantine with the staff and the players during the season? Um, well, probably not quarantine, but maybe just isolation with, yeah, right. I mean, it's, it would definitely be an advantage if a coach could convince athletes to stay out of, um, you know, clubs and social situations like that and say, anytime you're in public, you need to be wearing a mask. You need to be, um, considerate to your teammates and, and others by, by, you know, just distancing and wearing a mask and doing the right things that way. Um, but, it, you know, these are college kids, and they're going to do what they're going to do, and you can't control them all hours of the day. But um, if if you could, I mean, I, I think you could still isolate this. If somebody tests positive, you could isolate them and uh, keep them from the rest of the team and continue on. I mean, part of it is you could do it by time element or you could do it by testing, but if you test, you need pretty quick turnaround to get the result of that test. Otherwise, really, it, so say you test one person, but they've had contact with several other people, unless you have the results on the other people that they had contact with relatively quickly, it could still spread throughout the team. Part of the problem even is with the testing. Like the gold standard on the test is the deep nasal pharyngeal swab, but to do that test, somebody has to have uh, PPE which isn't very practical. So now we're looking in sports at other ways to test. For instance, in the NBA, they're doing a anteronasal swab and a, and a pharyngeal swab. But this is a, it's not really any more comfortable than the deep nasal pharyngeal swab. So it's a, like a 15-second swab in each nostril and a swab on the back of the throat, and then it's mixed together and then sent for uh, analysis, and you get the result within 24 hours. But the big advantage of that is you can – do that without the person gathering, collecting the sample, without having full PPE. Another test is a saliva test where you don't have to have full PPE, but that hasn't been FDA approved yet, but it looks like it's a good test. Um, and so it gets difficult for some of these schools, uh, our school included, 
to sit there and say we're going to test 120 football players every day when it takes about 15 minutes to test four people. It's just not practical. So part of what we're looking at with testing, too, and plan on doing is testing certain pods on certain days. So one day we may be testing defensive backs and assume that that test on that individual will be similar to the other individuals in that pod, test running backs, test wide receivers, people that are around each other more, and then um, just just try to carry on that way on a, on a day-to-day basis. It's for us to test everybody, you know, I guess pro football is 55 players, but for us to test over 100 football players every day, it's, it's just not practical. So take us back to that meeting. Dr. David Petron joined us, and you were saying that after this meeting and representatives from all the Pac-12 schools, there, there was more pessimism there. What is the – do you come out of it with action items? Like, okay, what are the things we're going to do this week? So the next time we meet, we got this info. What's the next thing that, you know, maybe we'll provide some more hope or maybe we'll provide more pessimism and convince everyone to shut it down? But what's, what's the next thing? Well, I think the next step is trying to define – on a conference-wide level, maybe on an NCAA level, what high risk is. Um, Because if you define, if one team defines high risk one way and another team defines it another way, there's a, there would definitely be an advantage. So say, say you say anybody that's across the line from a person who tested positive, all those people also have to be considered high risk. And then we need to hold them out and test them on day three and day five and wait for the results. So you could have a fair amount of your team um, out for that competition where, say, another team says, well, high risk we think is just somebody who's uh, in a roommate or um, who's next to them in the locker room and, and just say it's a fewer number of people that they consider high risk. Well, that would be an advantage for that team, right, because they could just say, well, we don't think they're high risk and they can continue to play. Um, so that that's one of the biggest challenges, and we haven't come up with that yet. Another thing we're looking at, with football anyway, is face shields and also looking at potentially wearing a gaiter with a face shield or some sort of mask with that to try to lower the risk. One of the infectious disease doctors in the meeting yesterday actually felt that basketball is a higher-risk sport because you're up closer and, and breathing more of the same air. And you can't really wear any kind of protective mask um, for basketball. So he thought that was a higher-risk sport. But they're looking at using this kind of full face shield cover, um, which really there hasn't been any research on it yet, but think that it may give some sort of protection in addition to wearing a gaiter, and then that may lower the risk. So, so some of the challenges, we're trying to get consistency on testing from one team to another, being able to get the testing back in a timely manner, and having a consensus on what we dis- what we decide to be a high risk versus a low risk person. Now, unless we get consensus on that, I think some of this is really difficult to move forward. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. When we get to the point of competition, whether it's on an NCA level or individual le- or conference level, it looks like there's going to be requirements of some form of uniformity. Is that accurate? Yes, absolutely. So when you guys meet, this information goes back to coaches, this information goes back to ADs. How does this spread? And uh, when we talk to someone in any of those categories at any school, what kind of things should we be asking them? Yeah, no, you're exactly right, DJ. So 
today there will be a meeting with coaches, and I think athletic directors are part of that meeting as well. And then one of the, the representatives from the meeting yesterday will relay some of um, the discussion points that we had and um, try to try to get some resolution with this. But, you, I mean, just from what I've said, I think you can see that it's not as easy as it seems like it would be on the surface just to say, well, let's, let's, let's play football. Interestingly, the SEC ticket sales are up. Go figure. <laughs> how does that? How does, can you believe? I, I think our tolerance, and this this is just my opinion, but I think our tolerance in the Pac-12 is not quite that of some of the other conferences. Um, I think the SEC and the Big Ten will try to push this to the limit. The Pac-12, I think, um, may not may not have as much tolerance as some of the other conference. I don't know what you guys think of that. Yeah, it looks that way. I, I, I'm not asking you to comment individually on what UCLA is doing and all that stuff, but there was a thing last week where players said they wanted a neutral third party. They didn't necessarily t- trust the coach on this. And my thought, as far as the medical people, isn't that what you're already doing? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't put the... Yeah, as long as the coach doesn't supersede the decisions of the local health department and the medical people involved with the team, then um, I don't think you need a third party. I mean, that that kind of goes back to just some of decision-making and sport in general. So I guess you could make an analogy to concussion. So in the NFL, they have a neutral person for concussion, kind of feeling like the team's medical staff can't make an objective decision on return to play for concussion so they have a they have a neutral person but in general i would say my colleagues across the country look out for the health and and well-being of the athlete first and the sport second but i can understand uh where some of those student athletes at ucla are coming from wanting a, a a third party i don't think any of the other schools have asked for that uh, I've read that football provides about 80% of the TV revenue value in a in a contract. You know, the rest is probably men's basketball. And obviously, football charters to games. The other sports don't generate the revenue, but they largely travel commercial air. Now, they drive to some games, and there's some charters, certainly for men's basketball. Have you addressed commercial air travel for sports teams, or is that too far down the list as a, as a group? Uh, we're looking at that, and some of our um, lower-risk sports, we plan on testing prior to them traveling commercially and then uh, having them wear masks when they travel commercially. Um, it's not really practical for sports like golf or some of the smaller sports to charter, so I think that, that becomes difficult. So I think a lot of the sports, the plan is still to travel commercially. Football, of course, is all charter. And I assume that you are strongly in the category that uh, we all should be wearing masks when we're in public. There's absolutely great evidence for that. Yeah, and if yeah, I hate that this has become a political issue. It should not be a political issue. We should all be wearing masks when we're out in public. If even if we don't feel like it's doing anything for us, you're you're being kind to those around you because it's shed through droplets and through air and if you can minimize that it definitely helps um, decrease the risk 
He's Dr. David Petron, University of Utah Healthcare, Utah's head team physician. We appreciate you coming on, and we'll look forward to talking to you again in another couple weeks, getting an update, because uh, everything is new. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, guys. There's Dr. David Petron. Works at the University of Utah, and he is a lead physician for the Utes and on the cutting edge of everything that's going on up there. And whatever is going on now will probably be different in a couple weeks. We'll have him back on. We've had him on a couple times. We love having him on the show. All right, when we come back, David Locke, radio voice of the Utah Jazz. Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ PK, it's 97.5 and 1280, The Zone. It is time to welcome in David Locke, the radio voice of the Utah Jazz his weekly appearance brought to you by the Murdoch Auto Team. David, good morning. Good morning. You know, it's always interesting we do this. Because I have a nice morning routine going, so I, I get up and do a little reading, and then I do yoga and meditation, and then I talk to PK every Friday. It's, so an, interesting transi- it's an interesting transition. After you're all relaxed and centered, then you get you get the ex-New Jersey guy who's all combative. It gets you all stirred up again. Yeah. You know, I've just done my did my calm app this morning, did my yoga. I'm like feeling very, you know, zen right now. And now I and now PK try maybe it's actually the only way that you don't fall into the PK trap. I'm just gonna be quiet. <laughs> no, don't do that. It would be such a bummer. How are you, PK? <laughs> Under the circumstances, I'm great. I'm grateful. I'm great and grateful, that's for sure. How's the golf game? Uh, you know, I've come to grips with I'm not as good as I used to be a couple years ago, and it's bothering me a little though. bit. Uh yeah, but I was I was getting a lot better, and and now I I see a decline. And where's where's the decline going to be? You know, where's it going to end? Where am I going to settle? Do you work at it? Like, are you willing to like go to the range and chip for an hour and putt for an hour and hit balls and work on fifty, seventy five hundred, like one twenty five? No. So, like, I'm having the most enjoyable golf stretch over the last two or three years because I've watched my daughter. And I've seen how hard she works, and I know I have no interest at all in putting in that kind of time to be that kind of player. Yeah, Luchavino. So, so, like, I'm totally content. Yeah, I know. I get it. And that's that's a a metaphor for life, really. How much work you put into it it determines how much success you have. Lee Trevino tells a story where he was going to some type of uh, pro-am event early in the week, and he drives up. And someone, he's actually uh, someone else is driving. And he looks over and he sees this figure in the sand just pounding away. And he does his thing. He's there for about five, six hours. He comes back. And so he's leaving. And he looks over. And he sees the same person out there doing the same type of thing. He finds out later. He stops. He says, who is that? He finds out it's Jordan Spieth. And Jordan Spieth has been there all day 
working on his game while Lee was doing, you know, Lee's his golf celebrity, obviously, and is very charismatic. And so he's doing that thing at this stage of his life because he had a phenomenal career. And it's really something that you put into the work you put into it is going to determine most likely the success you're going to have. And it's really something you can apply across the board. Yeah, it's, no, it's a good point. Like, I mean, today I think my daughter will go to the range and she'll probably hit for two hours hitting 10 balls to 50, 10 balls to 75, 10 balls to 100, 10 balls to 125. And then do it again. And yeah, yeah. do it again. It's tedious. And do it again. And I would not make it through the first rotation. But you would sit down at your computer and add up a bazillion numbers about the NBA. Right. And so it got yeah, you to where you right. are. So, you know, you can't do everything, David. You just got to pick something. All right. Well, I've picked that my 10.8 handicapper plus is just totally fine. <laughs> How's that? Nothing wrong with that. You can shoot You can shoot in the low to mid-80s. That'll work. Yeah. Uh, we know many things about you, David. One thing we know is you hate the freaking Lakers. And we were going to play yeah. the drop, but we're in a different studio because they're rebuilding some stuff here. Uh, so we can't play it. But I thought of you because I know that you hate the freaking Lakers. Uh-huh. Uh, Avery Bradley decides he's not going to play. And obviously, Lakers, Clippers, Bucks are the three favorites in some order, depending on who you are. But that's who most people have as the best teams in the league. How much does this hurt the Lakers? So I probably would have had the order Lakers, Clippers, Bucks, as you just said it. And with Avery Bradley out, I would probably have it Clippers, Bucks, Lakers. If I was in Vegas betting, I would do otherwise because the Bucks route is easier, right? And so they're more likely to be there. But um, so I intercept playing. But just in regards to who I thought the best teams were, I think this shifts it from the Lakers to the Clippers. I think the Clippers are now a better, deeper roster. I think Avery Bradley's tenacity defensively is significant. His length is significant. I mean, I remember the Jazz playing the Lakers earlier in the year. Um, and just coming back after the game and talking about how long they were. That was like, oh, my gosh, they just take the entire court, you know, and between Anthony Davis and JaVale McGee or Dwight Howard and LeBron and Danny Green and Avery Bradley. Like, the, the, they were – and Avery Bradley's long, like 6'7", wingspan, kind of like Donovan. Um, but, like, so the Jazz were, you know, 6'1", 6'1", 6'4", with Roy, 6'7", with Joe, six with Boyan and Rudy and here were the Lakers at 7-1 7-1 9 LeBron who's massive Danny Green who's what 6-5 6-6 and, and Avery Bradley and they were like just whoa like and then when they went to their small lineup in that game they brought in Alice Caruso and slid Anthony Davis to the five and they still were massively long even though they were playing quote small um, so I think the loss of that Avery Bradley in that regard is significant now it, you know the other thing that he was doing really well is he just didn't use any possessions at all. Like, right. So he just played 26 minutes a night and played defense and battled and just rarely used a sh- possession because there's so many other guys in that possession. So he was even, I think his value was even more significant in the sense that he understood how to fit into that group in that role. I, I, the Avery Bradley not going to Orlando is the surprise to me so far. I was listening to Ryan Hatch's station the other day down in Phoenix, and they were talking How about. Oh, he? uh, he's king of the world, man! Doing great, yeah. as far as I know. Well, talk to him occasionally. Um, they were talking about how for baseball, the 
TV folks have to do it remotely, but the radio folks are going to be allowed to travel and go on the road. What's your situation? Um, I don't know that we've said anything officially, but it's pretty well known across the league that radio and TV will stay home and not go to Orlando um, on the local broadcasts. Uh, I think in one of the releases, that w- there's a single individual of each organization that's a content creator that will be going into the bubble. So the Jazz will send someone. Um, I understand. I, you know, I don't. I don't know what I'm allowed to say or not to say on, on what's official on that. So there will be content coming to utahjazz.com. Um, uh, from from someone in, inside Orlando, uh, but it will not be radio or TV. So how are you going to call it? They're going to have separate monitors for you guys for TV versus radio? Um, we're working on all of those details right now, but I mean, I think um, socially distanced appropriately, Ron and I will be uh, somewhere um, that, you know, we've believe to you know first is first safety and then being able to put the broadcast out watching it off a monitor david Locke, radio voice of the utah jazz joining us um we've seen the photos of nikola jokic the joker has dropped 40 pounds remade himself to the point i didn't i had to do a double take i wasn't sure it was him the first time i saw it and sure enough he looks totally different. Do you think, giving up that, that he, he's lost any strength that's going to make him a different player, or is this just going to make a guy who is already averaging 20 points, 10 boards, and 7 assists, is this just going to make him uh, leaker, uh, le- I can't even say, sleeker, leaner, and just, you know, better able to play in the fourth quarter instead of getting tired carrying extra weight around? Or is there a downside? Is he going to get How long around? have we been off? Well, over three months. 40 pounds. I read it was 40 pounds. It may not be, but that was in the story I read about it. it was, he right? lost so like, 40. That's, a, like, that's absurd. That's why I, I asked you. Because, that it's a lot. <laughs> well, I think we all knew he wasn't in great shape. I mean, I remember the last time the Jazz played the Nuggets, talking with people about how they, they just got to run this guy. I mean, he doesn't look like he's in great shape. Run him, and, and maybe you can wear him down a little bit. You know, I, I do, you know, part of his game, I think, was the girth. Um, but, you know, he's a pick-and-roll liability. Um, if this allows him to play the pick-and-roll defensively better, and they and he does not like to drop on the pick-and-roll, he likes to show and come out on the pick-and-roll. And so if he's more agile and able to do that, um, I, I think that could have a tremendous impact, particularly on the defensive level. He couldn't be more of a wizard offensively. He's just so great. I can't imagine that he would get less, you know, in some ways he would be hurt in that regard. Um, so defensively, the way they play him is they, you know, we drop Rudy to the rim. They show and um, play the ball aggressively. Um, so that should help him. Their pick and roll defense, if you recall, last year in the playoffs was a disaster because Derek White, like, dropped 30 on them. Um, and Derek White's not a player who drop, should drop 30 on you. Uh, so I, I think when you you know, he should get better than obviously long-term that's less wear and tear. And so you would assume he stays healthier, but he has not had a big injury problem. We have seen him quit on given nights, particularly against Rudy. He gets frustrated. Um, will he be, you know, is it less of a burden to play when you're not carrying as much weight? And so therefore you, you don't get as frustrated would be this, what I would watch. Do you believe Donovan Mitchell has the ability to be first team or second team All NBA in the coming years? 
Who? What's he going to be? Would he be third team this year? Like he has a chance of that? Yeah, that's why I said first or second. I was thinking yeah. that. Um, so he would have to be one of the four best guards in the league. Yes. Obviously. I mean, I'm stating the obvious. I'm just sorry. I'm just trying to, like, calculate that. You know, Bradley Beal was on the All That Smoke, is that what it's called, podcast with Stephen Jackson and Matt Barnes. And it was really interesting talking about how he went from 24 to 30 points a game. And that's what he really like wrote the script for Donovan on how to do it. Um, if, if Donovan can follow that model, then the answer is yes. But I, I think he'd have to be a 30 point a game scorer to be thought of in that level with the amount of elite level guards that are in the league. Right. I mean, so Harden and Harden's still in the league and Steph's and, you know, we're talking about Steph. So now, now we're down to two spots, right? Um, so you're going to have to get into that rarefied air and the way you get into that rarefied air is probably by dropping 30 a night. Which so, is hard. so the, the path that Beal uh, lays out, is this getting Donovan's four and a half free throws a game up to seven, eight, Maybe, I mean, there's only a couple guys shooting 10, so I hesitate to go much higher than that. Or is it, you you talked about how good Donovan is on the catch and shoots. Is it the coaching staff realigning the offense so he has the ball in his hands less and therefore has a chance to get more catch and shoots? So you are really smart. Might even listen to some of the things I say in the past and make it sound like we're really cooked. Like, that was good. Yeah, I mean, Bradley Beal went from 23 to 26 to 31 in three years. And he did it by going from four and a half free throws to five and a half free throws to eight free throws. And he did it by going from six threes to seven threes to eight three attempts. And then specifically the unique thing to Donovan is that Bradley Beal added the off the bounce three to his game. Donovan actually needs to add the catch and shoot three to his game more. It's where someone like Mike Conley is really valuable because it allows Donovan and Joe Ingles to play off the ball a little bit. But Donovan is is truly one of the great catch-and-shoot three-point shooters in the NBA. In his three years in the league, if you start running through his numbers on what he is on a catch-and-shoot three, there's very, very few players that are better. Um, the problem is that Donovan's off-the-bounce three game is not great. And I, and I would say that you know if Donovan's taking seven threes a game right now, we need to get him to eight or nine. The eighth and ninth need to be catch-and-shoot threes, where he makes 44% of them for about his career. I mean, I think that's, he's improved a little bit. His rookie year, if I remember, he was, last two years, he was 41%, and then this year he's 44%, if I, I'm doing that off the top of the head. Whereas the off the bounce three, he's improved a little bit. He was 29% his rookie year, and now I think he's 32% the last two years combined. Still not great. And so, you know, can he get to eight threes a game and maybe instead of, you know, being four and four, it's actually five catch and shoots and three pull-ups. Well, that would be a pretty massive change to his game. And then the next one is learning where to draw the foul. I think that's, the, from some of the research I've done, when we think of foul drawing, we think of it at the rim. It's actually earlier. Like, if you think of Harden, if you think of Beal, they're actually getting fouled in the paint non-restricted area or even right before they get to the paint on their drives to the basket. It's not at the point in which you're trying to finish at the rim. 
verticality in the league's gotten so good. And so you, you're, you're drawing those fouls earlier. And I think that's a, I think you have to watch that on film and learn it. And Johnny Bryant is so great with Donovan, you know, and them have to work on that together to figure that out. But that's, that's kind of when I watched some film during this time period of trying to figure out like, well, how, like what's Bradley Beal doing to draw his fouls? Um, that's what jumped out to me. Cause if you actually look at Bradley Beal this year, his shots at the rim are down a tiny bit, which seems weird that you'd be increasing your free throw attempts so much. Um, but they are, they, he's gone from 28 to 24% um, of his shots are at the, at the rim. Um, Donovan's got some trends that he needs, you know, quite frankly, to answer your first question, quite honestly, PK is Donovan's amazing. Um, if Donovan's going to try to reach the rarefied air that you just talked about, he has a trend or two that he has to flip. Um, his amount of shots at the rim are decreasing at a pretty dramatic amount. His mid-range shots are increasing at a pretty dramatic amount. And the, those need to flip back around. I, if I remember correctly, and there's a little dyslexia here and I don't have it in front of me, um, he either used to take 27% of his shots at the rim and he's down to 16%, or he used to take 26% of his shots at the rim and he's down to 17%. Nonetheless, it's a 10% drop. Um, and that 10% drop has, of the 10%, 8% of them are that little floater, and then you know 1% of them is a mid-range this and that. So um, he's got to fix that. Um, his rim finishing is still elite and unbelievable. He's so creative around there, but he's instead of that floater, he's got to draw foul. So what does Quinn Snyder's line, the road from complacency to complicity is a slippery slope mean to you? To me, it means, and I've said this about myself, so I'll very personalize this. Um, my, my answer on this has been that my, I've always felt that I was very supportive of equality issues and minority rights and something I pride myself on. But if I was honest about it in retrospect, I think I was passive and scared. And what he's saying is you need to be active and brave. So how does that play out in everyday behavior? Um, I think, I think in everyday behavior, it's a subtle, reminder to someone when they say something that what they did, they may have intended it, they may not have, but it's not appropriate. Um, I think it's an awareness of the plight that different individuals are having. I think it goes back to a Stephen Covey uh, line from seven habits of highly effective people where make sure you view the world from other people's lenses, not just your own. Um, you know, the catchphrase right now is to listen, but I do think that's accurate. I had a personal experience with the Lockdown Podcast Network where we put out a Black Lives Matter roundtable. And in my, you know, both you, particularly you, DJ, have had to deal with it when I have a vision of something and I put it together. And in this circumstance, I actually opened my ears and, you know, I'll share this story. I shared it on another show, but I, we, we had eight of our black hosts putting together a roundtable turned out terrifically it's available on, on any locked on feed and I, if you haven't heard it I, i'd strongly suggest it it was eye-opening to me in that we had eight individuals who every you know from all across the country and in different ages and every single one of them had had you know terrible experiences solely based on the color of their skin um which leads you to believe it's universal but the story i would tell on this just on like listening and this is was this was i think the classic example of kind of the the white director 
having a vision for something and not, and then I will thank goodness I listened. I wanted to open the show with like a real bang. I wanted to have this like huge moment right out of the shoot that grabbed your attention. And so I presented to the host that like, Hey, let's come out, say who you are, where you're from. And like, give me a quick hitting experience you've had with racial discrimination. I thought it was going to be incredible, right? I'm Ross Jackson. I live in Louisiana. I live in LA. Boom. Hi, I'm Keith Pompey. When I was four years old, boom, right? Like, and I just was like, this is going to grab everyone's attention. And they emailed back and said, we'd far rather be recognized as the humans than we are than the victims of discrimination. Nice. And I was like, you're right. You're hundred percent right. My bad. I like it. Didn't even realize what I had done. Right. But I had totally just labeled all of them as their primary characteristic of how society, like, like that's no. You know what their primary characteristic is? That Chris Carter is lives in Pittsburgh, went to law school, is a lawyer, also hosts Locked On Steelers, and has two kids. That Tony Wiggins has been a barber in Jacksonville for twenty years, former radio host, has three kids and a grandkid, and is the host of Locked On Jaguars. They're humans, not victims of discrimination. Humans who have had experiences share those. So to me, that was a really eye-opening experience that I had just totally implanted like this idea on them, and luckily I listened, and it was way better. It's totally you. Okay, radio producer, this is how we're going to structure it. And then ABC. I mean, I have sat at a desk and listened to you do that so many times. And I'm glad that these guys felt like I actually just sent back, like, Ross Jackson's the guy who emailed me back and said that. And then I just sent a reply all, like, okay, this is it right here. Like, you guys got to, like, talk. Like, tell me this is perfect. Like, thank you. Like, 100%. 100%. This is why we're doing this roundtable, so you can tell me. And I had another topic that I wanted to talk about, which was, which I think this is, again, my, totally my personal experience. And I, I've just seen so many times in my life where I see someone who I don't think has the intention of being just blatantly racist with a comment to someone, and they are. Um, you know, um, I've had it frankly by being married to a Japanese I had someone the other day when we were celebrating Loving Day which is the day in which Loving vs. Virginia in 1967 legalized interracial marriage in America so there were 18 states in 1967 that made it so if you were a different race you couldn't get married in 1967 okay so I mentioned this to someone and that I was getting flowers for my wife who's Japanese and her the person's comment to me was oh I don't really think of you guys as an interracial marriage horrendous so what you're saying is that the japanese aren't really minorities but maybe the blacks and hispanics are it's a awful ah never thought of it that way it's a totally awful comment and so i waited like a week and called that person back and said you know i'm sorry this has been gnawing in the the climate right now i think i gotta share it with you with the way i heard that and then their comment was well i really meant it as a compliment Okay, you know what? My wife's parents were jailed because of their race for three years of their lives. So don't deny them that at the same time. That goes back to the roundtable that we had where I, these guys said, Tony Wiggins, the guy from Jacksonville, said, don't tell me you're colorblind. I'm black. I live it. Don't ignore it. Listen to it. Let me share it. Hear it. But don't tell me you're colorblind because then you're ignoring me. Then you're not denying me my identity. 
He's so David Locke. When, oh, sorry. I thought. So I think, <laughs> like the person who made that comment to me, I've I've known for a long time. They didn't. It wasn't intended to be this like racially laden comment, and I don't think you can like banish them from your life for it. But I think it was worth me calling a week later and saying, "Hey, I don't think you meant this, but it's bothered me for a week. You said this." Like, think about it, and I think it's something you probably should lose from your your thought process in the future. He's David Locke, radio voice of the Utah Jazz, and you got to be careful with his pauses. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. I'd been you good know, on the first three pauses, but the fourth one, I, I messed it you, up there. You know who I learned it from, right? Who? Rush Limbaugh. Oh, really? Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. All right, David joins us every week. David, thanks for the a few minutes. As always, we appreciate it. All right, talk to you soon. There's David Locke, radio voice of the Utah Jazz. Coming up next, what is trending? The headlines on the way.